Well, good morning. Um, we uh, finished out last week the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, we started it this summer, and I think we were thinking, okay, there's you know 13 chapters, 12 chapters, and about the same amount of weeks in the summer, and uh, we just finished it last week, so that took a little longer than we thought it would, but it was good. Um, Brent talked last week about just the, the body failing as time goes on, and uh, I had to order a new Bible this week because this one has too small a print for me, so I can um, but today we're starting First uh, Thessalonians, we're First and Second Thessalonians for the next little bit of time here. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up uh, to First Thessalonians chapter one, and we're going to look at the first uh, five verses today. Actually, the first uh, five and a half or four and a half verses. So First uh, Thessalonians chapter one. Just to give you a little bit of background. Um, Thessalonica, it was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia, had a population of somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000, depending on who you ask. Uh, so it was a large city of its day. Uh, it had a natural harbor and locations uh, of a north-south and an east-west trade route went through Thessalonica. So it was um, a, a hotbed of activity. Um, it was a flourishing center of trade, uh, philosophy, and culture, as you might imagine, um, just because there were crossroads there of these, these trade routes along with the port. Uh, Paul established this church at Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, uh, sometime around A.D. 49 to 51, and this letter was written also sometime between A.D. 49 and 51. And so the thought is that uh, Paul established this church, uh, and maybe even just as little as a few months later wrote this letter back to the church um, because of some things that were going on there. Um, he starts off the letter in uh, verse 1, uh, identifying himself as the author, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And the name Silvanus may not ring a bell, but the name Silas might ring a bell to some of you. That's the same person. So Paul, uh, likely the author of this book, uh, but, but Silas and Timothy were also part of establishing uh, this church in Thessalonica. So it's not necessarily thought by uh, theologians and commentators that, that Silas and Timothy kind of co-wrote the letter uh, as much as just Paul added their name to it as this letter coming from the three of them, but Paul uh, being the main author. And he identifies them as the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a significant statement, and in order to understand some of this significance, uh, we have to look back into Acts chapter 17 for a moment. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read to you uh, the account of how this church in Thessalonica came to be. So Acts 17, the first 14 verses, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed and when they had heard these things, and when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. 
The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica had learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds, and then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. So that gives us a little glimpse into how this church came to be at Thessalonica. It came to, came to be in this, uh, this cultural city with much contention. Paul, as, as was his custom, would when he would go to a new place, would usually find the synagogue, and he would go there, and he would reason with people, that he would start there. And, and that's what he often did. And he did here, it says, for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with the, the Thessalonians, And as a result, some of them came to faith. And people from all different kinds of backgrounds and all different kinds of cultures came to faith. It wasn't just Jews that came to faith, but pagans came to faith. And, and it even says not a few leading women, so some prominent women in the city, came to faith as well. And that didn't set well with this group of, of men from the rabble, they called them. And, and so they started making a fuss about it. And, and their complaint was that, that these men, that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, had turned the city upside down. Now, we might say they turned the city right side up with their proclamation of the gospel. But, but it went against the culture of the day. Right? Their, their message was, was not necessarily a popular message in this cultural center. And so they turned the city upside down. And so they searched for Paul. They couldn't find Paul and his buddies. And so they found this guy, Jason, who evidently that's where Paul stayed. And so they said, kind of guilt by association, right? You put this guy up and gave him a place to stay. We're going to drag you in front of the city authorities. And they had some things to say to him. And, and, and Jason paid the bail um, to get out of jail. And immediately they, they took Paul and they said, dude, you got to get out of here. <laughs> they're, they're coming for you. And so they snuck him away uh, by night down to the next town. And again, as was Paul's custom, he, he found the synagogue in the next town. He went to Berea. He found the synagogue and he did the same thing there. And, and we're told that the people there were, were somewhat more receptive to the message, interested in, in the message that Paul had to say. But when the rabble in Thessalonica heard about what was happening in the next town, they hopped on their horses and they went to the next town and they stirred it up there too because they didn't like what Paul had to say. They didn't like the proclamation of the gospel. They didn't like the message that says that there's somebody greater than Caesar. They didn't like the message that says that there's a kingdom that's coming that's greater than the government that you're under now. They didn't like that message. And so they stirred it up in the next town and they had to send Paul off by boat that time, uh, presumably to save his life. Uh, but Silas and Timothy stayed there. So, so when Paul starts his letter to the Thessalonians, like I said, likely just a few months later, he reminds them that, that they're the church at Thessalonica. And, and what is it that our Bible tells us about the church? The Bible tells us that, that in the end, that nothing is going to prevail against the church. Right? It, with all of its flaws, all of its flawed people, nothing is going to prevail against the church of Jesus Christ and God the Father. And so he reminds them of this that they're the church, that they're the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that they're coming to faith, not, not in the kingdom of Caesar, who uh, is not going to last, right? We, the kingdom of Caesar isn't around today, right? It, it fell. He reminds them that they're the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives them his customary greeting, grace and peace to you, grace to you and peace. John Stott in his 
commentary says this, it's truly remarkable to read Paul's comprehensive portrayal of the Thessalonian church. It's likely only a few months old and its members are newborn Christians. Freshly converted from either Judaism or paganism, their Christian convictions have been newly acquired. Their Christian moral standards have been recently adopted and they are being sorely tested by persecution. You would expect it to be a very wobbly church in a very precarious condition, but no. Paul is confident about it because he knows it's God's church because he has confidence in God. And so in these just short few words, he gives them a reminder. He gives them a reminder that that will hopefully stabilize them in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of contention. Right? We, we happen to be fortunate here that, that we're well received in our community. Um, when you go out in the community, if, if you're ever wearing, you know, your door T-shirt or your door hoodie, people often say, oh, I, I hear great things about the door. Uh, or, you know, we went to Trunk or Treat, and thank you guys for doing that. Um, very complimentary. We, we don't know what it is to have this kind of contention. Uh, matter of fact, I don't know if I've ever heard of in America somebody planting a church and it getting off to this kind of a start where where people say, we don't want you here. I think generally churches are received, even if people may not agree or believe the same things we believe, churches are generally received wherever they're at. Probably the worst thing I heard of, and it was pretty recent, and it really isn't that bad by comparison, but uh, over on the Oregon coast, I read an article uh, that the churches uh, who traditionally feed people, they have feedings every day of the week at these various churches over, I forget the city on the coast, but... um, People were complaining about the kind of people that these these food distributions would attract to their church, and so they went to the city council with this complaint, uh, saying that the churches are, are attracting unsavory people into our neighborhoods where these churches were located. Uh, and the city council actually made a ruling that says churches can only feed people two days a week because of these complaints. That's probably the worst persecution I've heard of. And by comparison, I mean, it's crazy that, that happened, but but it's not that bad compared to what we see here. Right? Nobody's dragging anybody to jail. Nobody's having to flee in the middle of the night to, to preserve their life. Right, And, and so there's a, a persecution that's happening from this church from the get-go. And Paul reminds them, not only are they a church, but they're the church of God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. But he reminds them of the grace and the peace of God. And grace, we understand that to, to be God's unmerited favor, something that we don't deserve and that we can't earn. Simply by God's Loving kindness, he's gracious to us. He involves himself in the affairs of mankind. He doesn't have to, but he does. And he's good to us. He reminds, Paul reminds him of the peace of God. When we think of peace, what do we think of? We might think of just the absence of conflict. Like if you don't have any conflict in your life, you might say that your life is peaceful. Um, You know, if our country doesn't have conflict with another country, we might say that it's a time of peace. But this idea of peace that Paul talks about, this shalom, uh, is more than just the absence of conflict, but, but it also has the idea behind it that, that we have a right standing with our Creator, that, that we're not enemies of God, or we're not on the wrong side of God. So, so not only do we have the absence of conflict, but we have God's goodness looking down upon us and involving uh, itself in our lives. And so these two words, grace and peace, pack a big punch. And he's reminding them in the midst of, of their wobbliness, as John Stott calls it, in the midst of their persecution, that God is still gracious to them. And even though they might have contention with everybody around them, they, they have peace with God where it matters, right? Grace and peace, right standing and right relationship before God. Then as we get into verse 2, he gets into um, what we might call some virtues of the church. 
And not necessarily an exhausting, exhausting list or exhaustive list of virtues, but virtues nonetheless. In verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And we'll pause there for just a moment. Paul tells them that he gives thanks to them always for all of them. Now, what do we know about the life of the Apostle Paul? We know that from the moment he came to faith in Christ, that his life became much more difficult. Right? Paul had a standing in the world. He was somebody. He was revered and he was respected. Uh, and when he came to faith in Christ, he became persecuted. The persecutor of the church became persecuted on behalf of the church. His life was difficult. And I bring that up because if I'm Paul and I'm writing a letter, I might start my letter off by saying, hey, things have been really hard for me. If you all could pray for me, I would really appreciate it. I, I might even go into some stories. Like here, here's an example. Of, you know, I was shipwrecked for days and I was without food. And then I went to this other place and they threw me in jail and they beat me within an inch of my life. And man, it's been tough. If, like, if you could pray for me, I really would appreciate it. I need it. But no, Paul starts off his letter by saying, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly or, or without ceasing, mentioning you in our prayers. But when I was putting my sermon together, I, I thought of, a, of an instance from several years back where um, a prayer meeting happened at our church one day, and I wasn't there for the prayer meeting. I was at work, but I got a call um, in the middle of the afternoon uh, letting me know that these two guys at the prayer meeting were standing toe-to-toe, ready to come to blows over an argument somehow came up at the prayer meeting. And somebody thought I needed to be aware of that. And my first thought was not one of thankfulness. My first thought was like, these are adults. And I have to intervene with these two adults who just about came to blows at a prayer meeting. And I spent a couple of weeks, honestly, just kind of shaking my head. <laughs> was not thankful for, for these particular guys for a couple of weeks. And I read this and that story just came back into my mind, realizing just the pastoral nature of Paul. Um, oftentimes when Paul would write letters, he, he's issuing correction in some of his letters to the churches. Sometimes it's just a hard correction. You know, you guys need to get this right. Other times it's more gentle uh, and what we might call pastoral correction. And we're going to see in, in this letter that Paul is, is going to issue some correction to the church at Thessalonica, this brand new, uh, somewhat wobbly church. Not, not one of my finer pastoral moments that, that I shared with you, but, but this was convicting to me of Paul just being thankful uh, rather than complaining that, gosh, you're a brand new church and I already have to issue you some correction. I already have to tell you. Like he's, no, he's thankful. He gives thanks to God always for all of them, constantly mentioning them in his prayers. Paul, Paul's prayers were not inward. And there's nothing wrong with, with praying, you know, praying for yourself. Nothing wrong with that. But, but we don't ever see Paul writing in his letters, you know, I was praying for myself the other day and here's what I said. Right? He, he's always thinking of others constantly praying for others without ceasing praying for others. Even people that, that sometimes would cause him a little bit of grief. I don't think this church was causing him grief, but certainly in other writings of Paul, there, there's some grief caused by some of the churches that he started. Yet he's thankful, constantly thankful, constantly praying, not necessarily asking for prayer for himself, although I'm sure he could use it, and I'm sure that these churches are praying for Paul. But he gives thanks to God always for all of us. And 
Uh, Janet, I love what you shared earlier just about being thankful for people in the church that are willing to step up and help when help is needed. We're blessed that way, that, that we have a church that's responsive in that way. Um, we have a church, I think, that like we're thankful for each other, we're thankful for each other, and you know, be convicted that, that we would be thankful for each other always, constantly mentioning each other in our prayers. What, what is it that your prayers look like if you had to kind of put a number to it of you know, how often do you pray for yourself versus praying for others, right? If you're like me, you probably pray for yourself a lot, right? This is convicting to me and hopefully to you that we would spend more time praying for others maybe than we do for ourselves. Constantly, so without ceasing all of the time and remembering before our God and Father. What is it that Paul remembers as he's thinking about the church at Thessalonica, he remembers three virtues. He remembers their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Who of us would that not bring a smile to our face if we were to think about others and their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope? This work of faith, we we might think of it as the activity of faith. The emphasis is that, that faith that is active actually does something, right? This wobbly church, this new church who are still trying to get their feet under them by way of their convictions, they have a faith, according to Paul, that, that is active. If their faith wasn't active, there probably wouldn't be much contention in the city, right? But their faith was active. A faith that's authenticating will necessarily, or authentic, will necessarily lead to a way of living that shows that faith to be true. Right? A church that has an authentic faith is going to serve the community. A church that has an authentic faith is going to serve the community while proclaiming the message of the gospel to that community. And that's likely going to rub some the wrong way, as, as we see in this case. But the idea of this work of faith is that, that the faith is active. And it's a little bit different from the labor of love that Paul mentions. That the idea of the labor of love is that, that there's this hard, intense work that's attached to the faith. And what I mean by hard, intense work is that because of our love for God, it causes us to love each other, right? Our Bible tells us that. Because we love God, we love the things that God loves, and so we love God's people. Because we love God's people, we, we invest in one another's lives, and we get involved in one another's lives. And sometimes we do hard things because we're involved in one another's lives. Sometimes it's just hard being in relationship with one another, right? We're, we're a messy, broken, flawed people. Sometimes we rub each other the wrong way, and it's hard, it's hard to love each other sometimes. We also do hard things because we love one another. We sometimes have hard conversations with one another, bringing truth and correction with all grace and all gentleness. Sometimes we walk with each other through difficult things in life because we love one another. This is the hard, intense work of love that Paul is talking about, the labor of love. that The sacrificial investment in one another, whether that's bringing correction whether that's walking through difficulty, whether that's putting up with each other when it's not always easy to do. This is the labor of love that Paul is remembering before God when he thinks of the church of the Thessalonians. 
And then he mentions their steadfast hope. And another way to think about this is that they endure under pressure. They endure under a trial. The believers in Thessalonica suffered for their faith immediately. Imagine some of you in, in the moments that you came to faith in Christ. If there was suffering that immediately happened in that moment, how would you respond to that? How might you react? Even now, for, for some of you who have maybe been following Christ for a long time, if, if suffering came into your life because of your faith, how, how would you respond to that? And we see the church of the Thessalonians responding with a steadfast hope, remembering kind of what we sang today, if God is for us, who can be against us? Remembering that this life that we live here on this earth, it's, it's just a blip on the radar of eternity. Our hope ultimately lies in Christ. These believers in Thessalonica suffered for their faith. They were living in a time and place where their Christian faith was counter to the culture. And while we don't have the same kind of suffering or persecution here where we live today, our Christian faith is becoming more and more counter to our culture, is it not? Every day, it seems like we're just a little more countercultural for what we believe. I read several months back that a court in the United Kingdom actually ruled the Bible as being hate speech, having to do with issues of gender and sexuality, right? kind of a hot-button issue of our day. And a court actually handed down a ruling saying that the Bible was hate speech. Right? Our, our message is becoming more and more counter to our culture as time goes on. And while we haven't really had much in way of consequences from that, the, the time may, may be coming. It may be coming. And so Paul calls out these three virtues of the church of the Thessalonians, this brand new church, and immediately, months into it, he calls them out for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. And if these things are, are evident in this brand new church that's suffering persecution, that has some real consequences for their faith, if these things are present, that, that should tell us, like, this, this is a work of God that's happened here in the city of Thessalonica. Another commentary I read says this. It says, it's like this. In our present life, we are called forward in hope. And that future, the hope we have, comes back into the present and encourages us to be patient as we run this race. And so having our hope placed in the right thing or the right person allows us in the present, there's this future hope that, that we will one day experience this future hope allows us in the present to live as if that hope is true because we have a conviction that it's true. John Stott says that faith rests on the past, love works in the present, and hope looks to the future. And when you put all those things together, then it's evident in, in the life of a person or in the life of a church, and this is what we see here in Thessalonica. So he's constantly remembering all of them, always in their prayers for their work of faith, for their labor of love, for their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 4, Paul says that we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So Paul gives them this, this other reminder that they're chosen by God. And this idea of being chosen by God is the basis of our faith. 
we talked about, as Pastor Brent mentioned in our last table talk, about the sovereignty of God and, and the responsibility of, of mankind. And, and l- listen to it if you have a chance. I think we're going to talk about this for another week or two as well on, on this, this topic. Our Bible tells us that there's only one reason that we love God. And it's not because intellectually we figured it out. It's not because we're smart enough. It's not because of anything having to do with us, but we love God only because he first loved us. That's what our Bible tells us. Paul reminds the Thessalonians that they're chosen by God. Paul is thankful for their love, for their hope, for their faith, but ultimately those things exist because of God's electing love, because God has chosen them. And we don't have time today to fully get into what it means to be uh, elect. But let me say this, that that if this this weren't so, if God has not chosen those who follow him, there's a lot of kind of wheels that start to fall off of the bus at this point. Paul reminds him that they're chosen by God. And and in order to help us understand this, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8 says this. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And as we read this Old Testament writing from the Pentateuch, we're reminded in this that that God chose the nation of Israel, not because they were the biggest, not because they were the fastest, not because they were the smartest, not because they, they were the strongest, not because they were conquering other nations. In fact, the opposite of all of those things are true. They were small and they were weak and they were nobody and like they weren't a superpower in the world. It wouldn't make sense by our logic that God would choose such a people. But God chose them because he loved them and because he made an oath way back in the days of Abraham that says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And as a part of that oath, he brought them out with a mighty hand and redeemed them from the house of slavery. If you know anything about the history of Israel, you know that they were continually under somebody's thumb. Right? They didn't have peace in their, their society a whole lot because they were always enslaved by somebody, always persecuted by somebody because they were, they were the weak one and the small one. But God delivered them from that, not because they deserved it, not because they earned it, not because they did anything to find favor with God, but simply because he chose to love them. This is God's electing love. One mentioned earlier about knucklehead Christians, like we're all knuckleheads. There's no redeeming qualities about us that God would look at any of us and say, I choose you. All throughout the Old Testament, God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And something I've thought about a lot over the years, God identifying himself as the God of Jacob. Of all people that God could identify himself with, like Jacob really was, was a knucklehead. Not really many redeeming qualities about this guy until maybe later in his life. The guy was dishonest. He was disrespectable. 
And God says, that guy, I'm, I'm going to identify myself with that guy. That boggles my mind. But it's simply because of God's electing love, God's choosing love. What did Israel do to be the beneficiary of God's love? Nothing. What did Jacob do to be the beneficiary of God's love? Nothing. What did you and I do to be the beneficiary of God's love? Nothing. God has, has chosen to love us. We love him because he first loved us. Then Paul goes on in verse 5, after reminding of this, reminding them that God has chosen them, he says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So the proof or a proof of God's electing love among the people of the Thessalonians and the church at Thessalonica a proof of that love is that the gospel came to them. They heard it and they responded to it affirmatively. Or at least for those who did respond to it affirmatively. You, you've heard the saying probably many times. It says, preach the gospel when necessary. Use words. But I'm here to tell you today, it's always necessary to use words. There's never a time it's not necessary to use words to preach the gospel. Yes, we live it, but yes, it's a, it's a message to be proclaimed. The message of the gospel that Paul and Silas and Timothy brought to the Thessalonians was in word and in power and in the Holy Spirit. They, they didn't show up on scene and just say, you know what, we're, we're just going to kind of blend into the town for the next five years and we're going to get known and maybe we'll go help out at the local food bank. Those things are all well and good. He didn't do that. Paul shows up in town and immediately goes into the synagogues and, and tries to set them straight. He proclaims to them in word the message of the gospel. And that proclaimed word came in power and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And for those who responded to it, it came with full conviction, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying, like, don't do things like serve at the food bank or have out at the warming. So, you know, those things are great. But that's not necessarily proclaiming the gospel in word and in power. Right? Those things are a great means to an end to proclaim the gospel and trust that, that God will bring the power needed for people to hear the message. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And what Paul isn't saying here is like, here's a formula, right? Just, just say these words and I just like really hope that it's true. He's not saying that at all. But there's some implications that come with confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the implications that come with that is that you actually believe that to be true and that you submit your life to Christ because he is Lord. That you submit to him and that you believe in your heart like with, with full conviction with everything you've got that he is who he says he is. Paul goes on in Romans 10, 13 to say that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And what he's not saying is that everybody who walks an aisle or raises a hand in an emotional moment will be saved. He's not saying that. He's saying for those that call on the name of the Lord because the word came to them in power and in the Holy Spirit, those who call on the name of the Lord with full conviction that he is who he says he is, Will be saved. And then he goes on in Romans 10, 17 to remind us that faith comes by hearing. 
and hearing through the word of Christ. And so reminding us again that the gospel is a message to be proclaimed. Yes, it's a life to be lived, but it's also a message to be proclaimed. And those two things are inseparable word and deed, right? Part of his commendation to them for their work of faith, their labor of love and their steadfastness of hope is the gospel coming out in the way that they live their lives. But that came to be because he came to them and proclaimed to them a message in word that they heard and that they responded to. Their faith came by the hearing of the word and their hearing came by the word of Christ. So we're going to stop in the middle of verse 5 today and Pastor David's going to pick it up second half of verse five, but, but what, what, what is all this for us, right? So, so this is, you know, cool story, how this church came together. It's persecuted, brand new church. They're still kind of sticking with it, right? They, they still have their, their convictions, even though it's hard. They're going against the culture. They're unpopular. They're going against not only the culture, but the government, right? They're coming against Caesar with this message of the gospel. Here, here's my encouragement to us. Are we abounding in these virtues? The work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope as a gospel witness to the community? And are we seizing the opportunities to proclaim the message of the gospel to our community? Corporately, we think about that as a church, but but also we, we think about it on an individual level. Are you taking opportunities to proclaim the message of the gospel to those around you? Not, not just living it, but also speaking the words, trusting that the power in those words is going to come not from you, not from your robust understanding or the lack thereof. Right? Moses was a guy, remember when, when God called Moses, what did Moses say? Like, I'm, I'm not a public speaker. Don't ask me to be the guy up front. God did what he did through Moses, right? Even in the lack of, of Moses' abilities. God did what he did in power, And so do we trust that God will do what he's going to do in power as we live and as we proclaim the message of the gospel? And really for us, it's not, even though it is becoming countercultural more so all the time, it's not that countercultural yet. Nobody's going to drag you off to jail because they're offended that you shared with them the love of Christ. It's just not going to happen right now. They're, they're, that time might come later, I don't know, but it's not now. Right? What, what are the consequences that we might face for proclaiming the good news of the gospel? People might think we're weird. People might not like what we have to say all that much. In the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal. Right? So be encouraged as we read about this brand new church, the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that, that they have conviction. Right? Do we have conviction that, that God is who he says he is, that the gospel is true, and that the power comes not from us, but in who God is, that the power comes in the message of the gospel. We, we all know people that don't know Christ. And so my encouragement to us today is to consider how we might not only live the gospel in front of those people, but how we might proclaim the gospel in front of those people also. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for today, thankful that you love us and that you care about us, thankful that you involve yourself in our affairs. Father, we're thankful for Christ and that you, um, through him, have shown us um, beyond doubt how much you love us. And so help us, Father, to be people 
of full conviction that we would be able to live the truth of the gospel, that we would be able to proclaim the truth of the gospel uh, in our daily lives, and that you, as a result, uh, would cause people to come to know you uh, through those acts. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.